Hey everyone, welcome back to a new adventure we're partaking with this Wildlife for You platform. Most of you, or many of you know me, especially if you're listening to this now, many of you know me for doing a lot of wildlife education endeavors. Um, I have done webinars in the past, myself and another colleague of mine, we've done some podcasts. But now we're branching out. Wildlife for You is branching out. We're going to try this new endeavor called a video cast. Now, don't worry, you can still listen to this cast while you're driving in your car. If you just want to listen to it, it should be on Spotify. We're kind of working all the details out. But if you want to see the mugs, the, <laughs> the mugs that are involved bringing these shows to you, now you can see them. So, Without further ado, I'm going to introduce myself to anyone who might not know me. My name is Daryl Radijak. I'm a lifelong wildlife biologist, and I had this passion for trying to teach the public about wildlife and about the great outdoors. I think your life is totally improved when you get outside and you learn about things and you just enjoy what God has provided and the nature that's that's out there. And so I've been doing this for a number of years. I'm, I am a professional wildlife biologist. I've been working in the field for, I don't want to date myself, but over 25 years. And I've met some just incredible people, wonderful, intelligent people, bright people, just charismatic people. And what I have done today to do this inaugural episode of this Wildlife for You video cast is I've brought a good friend of mine, Meg Pelly, to the show. And I, I'll let Meg explain kind of how we met because I'm not sure I could recall the first time we met. It is a weird thing. But Meg, you want to introduce us? Sure. Look who you are. Sure. Well, as you said, I'm Meg Pelly. And, you know, I was thinking today, we've known each other about three to four years, I think. Um, but we kind of met in a strange way. We had a, we had a mutual friend, um, and you were doing the Green Fire tours, and um, you were short a person. So through this mutual friend, my name was brought up, and you contacted me and said, hey, you want to go with me out to New Mexico? And you told me what all you were going to be teaching about and what the trip was going to be about, and I was so excited. I was like, absolutely, yes. And then I told my family and they went, are you crazy? You, you're going to meet some strange person that you don't even know in New Mexico? What if he's a mass murderer? <laughs> and so I, um, I don't tell anybody. So, you know, I took a chance. <laughs> but um, you turned out not to be a mass murderer, so it was good. <laughs> um, but, no, I brought my daughter with me on that trip. She was a senior at that time. Yes. And. Um, it was a fantastic trip, and you and I, and there was a group of five of us, um, and we all spent the week together, and you took us around New Mexico and to places we would never have seen on our own, um, and we just became good friends that way, and then I joined you again last year in Colorado, which was even better. It was just an exceptional trip. Um, and I brought my husband on that one, so he did know you were not a mass murderer. Mm -hmm. And then I'll be joining you again this year in Utah, and it's just going to be me this time. So, well, <laughs> just there's, my family. There's, 
yeah, there's there's others joining us. Um, and one of these days, I'll talk about the Green Fire Tour because that's kind of one of the prongs of my whole wildlife education. Besides webinars and podcasts and now video casts, we actually do a live and in-person week-long adventure in somewhere awesome USA. <laughs> so speaking of somewhere awesome USA, what I wanted to do for this very first episode, you live in an absolutely amazing part of the country and you're near a national park. And so I don't think you mentioned where you live or where you come from, but go ahead and do that. And then okay. tell us about this park that you are in love with. Well, um, I'm a good old Southern girl, <laughs> born and raised in Tennessee. Um, and I live not too far from the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. I uh, have spent numerous days, hours, hiking the trails all throughout that park. Um, I've not done all the trails. I'm working on it, but I've probably logged over a thousand miles in the park. Um, and I also currently am a volunteer in the park. So they like to call us the VIPs <laughs> for volunteer in the park. <laughs> but um, so I get to see a lot of what's going on kind of behind the scenes a little bit. Um, and the more I know, the more I fall in love with, with the Great Smoky Mountains. And so when you asked me to come today and kind of talk about the park, I was like, oh, definitely. That, that's a mm -hmm. favorite, favorite thing of mine to talk about. <laughs> well, that, that's wonderful. And just so everyone knows, Great Smoky Mountain National Park, which is located in eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina, it kind of straddles that border. It is an amazing place and it's near and dear to my heart as well because I told you I've been a biologist for 25 plus years. This That area is actually where I got my start. I, I actually started working with black bears around Great Smoky Mountain National Park. So if you have never been, highly encourage everyone to go even though many people are encouraged because it is the most visited park yes. in the entire country what, how many millions is it oh gosh i think it's up to 14.5 million yes it, it's rising and i was at work this past monday and in the visitor center we had over 5,000 people come through monday so and i got to speak to almost all of them <laughs> <laughs> and and the main reason for that, folks, everyone knows that when you look at the United States, the the vast majority, I think two-thirds of the population resides east of the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And so Great Smoky Mountain National Park is one of those parks that is within a couple-hour drive for mass millions of people, and they go there. Um, now, a lot of people go there for Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge, but we don't like that touristy type of stuff. We would rather get the natural world because that's, I think that's one of the best things that the, the park provides. So yes. with that, you want to have a conversation about Great Smoky Mountain National Park? So, I got to show you, I, I'm drinking my coffee. Everybody who knows me knows <laughs> I'm a coffeeholic. I mean, I don't know. What is it? 7.30 at night and I'm drinking coffee. But look at my mug. Can you see it? Oh, it's got the bear on it. Great yeah, Smoky okay. Mountain. I picked my mug, favorite mug out just for you, Daryl. All right. I, I don't have a fancy mug with me. Well, just I like just like Meg drinks coffee, I've got my Diet Pepsi. So ah. anyway. 
Okay, so let's have a conversation here about this wonderful place that we're trying to get people to visit. But I wanted to ask you something first, because you were born, you were born and raised in the East Tennessee girl, or, or were you not? No, I was actually born in Nashville, and I grew up in Middle Tennessee. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, well, at least you're a Tennessee girl. That's right. So, that's right. What What do you recall as your your very first memory of going to the Smokies? You know, you were just talking about how um, people come to the Smokies to go to the Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge area, and so when I was growing up as a kid, that's what we did. And and I have to say, and I'm going to date myself, but Pigeon Forge was nothing. There was nothing there. Now Pigeon Forge is completely grown up. Um, but when I was a kid, there wasn't anything in Pigeon Forge except for this little country store, and they had a cage outside hooked to the end of the store, and you could go in and buy a Pepsi in a glass bottle, and you could go outside and feed it to a bear. They had a I, I know what you're talking about because I heard about that bear when I first moved to Tennessee. And you know, now I look at that and I think, oh my gosh, you know. And but I can remember my family stopping and and we would take it out. I think you actually had to maybe hand the bottle to someone who worked there, and they gave it to the bear, and you got to watch the bear drink it. But oh my. <laughs> okay, you you can slap me and call me ungentleman like if you want, but like what? What year? Okay, you don't have to give the exact year, but is this okay. 70s, 80s, 90s? Okay, so <laughs> let me say that I was little during that time. I, I don't, that was probably the early 1970s. But my, okay. my first really strong memory of being in the park and, and hiking, because I love to hike, as we've said, um, I was older. I was a senior in high school. And that was 1985, so, you know, everybody's doing their math, trying to figure out how old I am. But, um, yeah, so as this, it was my spring break, my senior year in high school, and a couple of girlfriends and I came to Knoxville and stayed a few days, and we hiked up to Clingman's Dome. And, um, you know, I look back now, and knowing what I know about hiking, I think, we did all that wrong. Um, and that was when there were still trees. You go to Clingman's Dome now, the, the trees have been affected. Uh, a lot of them have died. It's still beautiful, though. The view is, you know, you always look for the positive. The view is open, so it's a very beautiful view, but it's a little paved pathway up to the dome. It's about half a mile. And I can remember we hiked it. I was wearing blue jeans, dress shoes, not high heel, but like flat dress shoes, a blue jean jacket. And we got up to the top of the dome. It started snowing. Yeah. And, and I remember, you know, I... I uh, I went to a military school, and so I ran every week, and I drilled with 15-pound guns, and walking up that little half a mile nearly killed me, <laughs> and we had to stop and take a break, and so if you've ever hiked up that little mile, you think, oh, that, that half a mile is nothing, but yeah, <laughs> so that got me. It's funny because I'm on a lot of Facebook forums, especially when it comes to the park, and there, there's a lot of questions about going from the parking lot to the Klingman Dome Tower. Yes. And what some people come, everyone says how difficult of a hike it is. And it is a very difficult hike, especially if you're not prepared for it. But some of the folks were saying about how 
from the parking lot to the tower is like 2,000 feet elevation gain, and it's 45 degree angle the whole. They, they're they're not quite right with their estimations, but needless <laughs> to say, it, it can be a difficult hike if you're not prepared for it. So. I think it surprises everyone because you know you pull up and you think, well, it's it's not far and it's paved, and so they don't really realize the steepness. But I'll give you a hint, and I, and I tell people this: if you're just going to see the view. I personally think the parking lot has a better view. I mean, yeah. it does. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree with you there. I mean, um, the other thing that catches people off guard typically, especially for you East Coasters, is the elevation because you're you're going up to over six thousand feet. Right. And most people in if they live in the east aren't used to that. Now, right. when I dragged you out to Santa Fe, New Mexico, we were. Our, the lowest point we were at was like 7,000 feet, yeah. so quite, yeah. a, quite a bit of difference. Yes, oh. and we, we have a lot of people that visit from Florida, and so, you know, they go, well, I walk five miles every day, and I'm like, yes, but not in the mountains. Yep. <laughs> it's a little foot elevation. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but yeah, 1985, the spring of 1985 was my first real memory, and I actually have pictures from that day. So I have pictures from my first real hike uh, in the park when I had no clue what we were doing. So it, it's funny you mentioned that it took a while before you went to the park, even though you were born and raised in Tennessee, mm -hmm. or at least to remember that. Similar situation with me. I was born and raised outside of Buffalo, New York, and like Niagara Falls just was. It wasn't anything that special because it was like nearby, and it, it just. I almost regret some of the not, not spending more time there because apparently it's a really big worldwide thing. <laughs> and it was like, oh, it's just the falls. So, you know, I'm from Tennessee and I've been to Niagara Falls. Yeah. You've been now, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I've been, but it just, it wasn't, it didn't seem to have that allure because we heard about it and you, you talked about it all the time and it's just yeah. in your own backyard so yeah well and you know the family my family that i grew up in um they weren't super outdoors type people um you know we didn't really camp or um do any of those kind of things so when we went to the park area we always spent our time in in gatlinburg and you know like you i regret that that's one thing that i hope um, my kids, I've, I've had my kids in the park, they're all grown now, but as they were growing up, we were in the park, we used to live on the North Carolina side, um, and my grandchildren, I want them to enjoy the park and, and take advantage of things that I didn't even think about, so, yeah. So, since you informed us your first memories of the park, I will tell you, I mentioned earlier that I got my start by working with bears so graduated from i'll date myself i i don't care but i i graduated from from college in 1992 and i was trying to get a job in the wildlife field and i was really struggling trying to find a job around that buffalo new york area that's all i was born and raised and never knew and this little advertisement came out that this place called the appalachian bear center was looking for a manager and the, the pay 
What? Well, I, I don't mind telling you the pay. 1997, it wasn't that long ago, 25 years ago, a little over 25 years ago, but the pay was just over $7,000 per year. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, was, I was freshly married. And it was funny because when I had interviewed for that position, we were planning our wedding, my wife Sandy, we were planning our wedding. And it was funny because I asked her, they called me up and they offered me the job. And so I like poked my head in and I said, hey, Sandy, they offered me this job down in Tennessee. And her response was, I'm too busy planning the wedding, you decide. Oh. And I was like, <laughs> that was all I needed. I had the, the, my foot in the door. And so I accepted the job. She didn't realize I accepted the job until after we got married and I told her I was moving to Tennessee. Uh, um, but 1997. I like bait and trap, wasn't it? <laughs> we're still married. That's the best thing. I brought her to Tennessee and she realized what she was missing her whole life. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, 1997 was the very first time I ever stepped foot in the park. And... Uh. I've been in love with it ever since. Um, I don't live there anymore, but it is definitely one of the highlights of my entire career was working around there. Yeah. So I'm familiar with the the ABR. Yeah, so, they changed names. Right. It, okay. it used to be, when I worked there, it was the Appalachian Bear Center. Yes. Now it's the Appalachian Bear Rescue. So were you, you didn't help start it or you did help? It was, No. It was started, do you know who Kim DeLosier is? Yes, yes. For those that don't know, Kim DeLosier was the longtime biologist for Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Uh, him and a couple other folks, they recognized this need for a place for the state wildlife agency and for the park itself to take orphan black bear cubs because occasionally they would come upon these orphan cubs and obviously, if you just take a, an orphan cub and you release it in the wild, the chances of it surviving are not very good. But you just couldn't raise it by hand because that bear would become imprinted and then you couldn't really release it then if it relied on people for food. And so they recognized this need for a new facility. And this was late 80s, early 90s, and it took a while to raise money and kind of solidify the idea to form this nonprofit. In fact, the the official name for the nonprofit was the Appalachian Black Bear Rescue and Rehabilitation Center. So it was it was a long name. They they since changed that. Um, but what they did is they finally it took them years and years to raise money to develop a facility where they can rehabilitate these orphan cubs. And they finally got that up and run in 1996. And they got their first cub in 1996, it was called Zero. Mm -hmm. And they hired a curator slash manager, her, her name was Shannon. And be, <laughs> I would imagine because of the living conditions and requirements, she didn't last but a month or so. <laughs> oh. And so, that's when I came in, and so I wasn't the very first person they hired. I was the second person they hired, but I lasted a little bit more than a month. So oh. <laughs> I ended up staying there for about five years and rehabilitated, I think it was 43 or 48 black bears wow. during that time. 
Yeah. Well, you know, you can follow the Appalachian Bear Rescue now. I follow them on Facebook. Um, and it's very interesting. Okay. Yeah. They, they make a post a day, and they do such great work. They're continuing to do what I imagine you started. So. I'm going to quiz you. Do you know uh, how many bears they are up to? Right now? Yeah. How many have they rehabilitated since that 1996? Oh, I don't know. I just failed. Can you guess? Um, in the hundreds, I'm going to say. Yeah. I believe they just surpassed, or they're really close to 350. Wow. So, so now, do they take them from all over the southeast or only through? It's primarily Tennessee, but yeah. a lot of these other states recognize what a great job that the that Bear Center and ABR does. And occasionally they will ask, or if they don't have a facility nearby, they sometimes send bears there. Mm -hmm. More and more states are developing similar type of facilities because of the need. But when I was there, I had uh, bears from North Carolina, I had bears from Arkansas. It, it was a one of a kind thing when it was first developed in the mid 90s. And so this place that you can send a cub, they'll do such a great job that you can then take that cub and release it back to the wild and have it survive was right. not something that many states were doing back then. Right, right. Um, well, and I happen to know that you have written a great book about your experience there with a really catchy title. <laughs> I bet you might have It'll one. It'll probably be backwards. I don't know if it'll be backwards. Um, <laughs> This book, and thank you for bringing that up. I just released that book uh, the beginning of this year. It was actually December 31st when I released it. But what I had done is my adventures, not just at the Bear Center, but inside Great Smoky Mountain National Park, they're phenomenal. And probably about five or six years ago, maybe longer than that, um, a good friend of mine, in fact, she... Stephanie Payne, who does the podcast with me, mm -hmm. she is an amazing writer. And I read some of the stuff she did. And she's like, you should write down your your adventures. I'm like, I can't write. And she's like, give it a try. So I wrote them down. And I apparently surprised myself because everyone <laughs> was saying, wow, those are really good. So for a long time, people were saying, you really need to put that into a book. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of these stories written down. I finally compiled them. And I I released it, so if you want to get it, <laughs> it's called Spooning a Bear. You just go to Amazon, and you can either do a paperback copy, or there's even an audio book. You know who I got to narrate the audio book? Who? I can't listen to it, because they're my personal story, so it would have felt weird having someone else read them. So I took on that project myself. Oh, good. And, uh, so I narrate the book, the audio book, but I can't listen to it because I just cannot stand how I sound when I hear myself talking. Well, you know, I've read your book, and when I was reading it, I, I thought, th this is exactly how Daryl speaks to you. I mean, I could hear your voice when I was reading the book. But one of the things I really like is you, you take your experiences and you kind of tie them into a life lesson. Yeah. And I thought that was really neat. And then also in the middle of your story, you kind of take a nerd break, I think you called it, and you yeah. explain to us a little bit more about what it is you're 
you're working on with these bears. And so you, not only are they entertaining, but they have a lesson to them, but you also learn some science behind them. So, you know, everybody should get this book. Yeah, and I, I, thank you again for bringing that up. I've been a wildlife biologist my whole life, and I, I know some brilliant, brilliant biologists. One thing with many government agencies, most wildlife is managed by either the federal government or state government. And oftentimes you have really, really smart people that just have no clue how to talk to the public. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where I'm not very smart, but at least I can try to communicate a little better with the public when it comes to what's going on with wildlife and explain things in a way that the public can understand. So well, that's the other emphasis. You put the cookies on the bottom shelf for those of us who need them on the bottom shelf. So yeah. <laughs> It works well. Like I, never, I never heard that term before, but I like it. Kidding. You never heard the cookies on the bottom shelf? Must nope, be a it's a southern thing. It's a I, I imagine. <laughs> so. I guess. Okay. We should probably get back to talking about the park. Yes. So yeah. I'm going to ask you a question. You impress this not on you could hike circles around me. I'll tell you right now. I know that. I'm not embarrassed to admit that. Um, <laughs> Since you vlogged oh, close to a thousand miles, do you have like a favorite trail or a favorite? Like, is there like one trail you do repeatedly just because you love it so much? So well, tell us about some of the trails. Yes, you know, depending on when you ask me that, that question, the answer to that question can change. Um, I've always loved Mount Leconte. Um there are five trails up to Mount Leconte. Alum Cave is the shortest and the most popular trail, has most has beautiful views, but probably because it's the most popular trail, it's my least favorite trail. <laughs> I, I kind of like to go where, the, where I may not run into anybody else during the right. day. Um, there's a trail in the park that I have hiked called Road Prong, and it's only two miles. Um, most people would tell you, I don't like that trail. Um, it starts at the road that goes out towards Clingman's Dome, and it goes down and it connects into the Chimney Tops Trail. Uh, the Chimney Tops Trail is where the fire started mm -hmm. a few years back in the Smoky Mountains. Um, and most of this trail goes through a creek bed. But the reason I like it is it's, it's almost otherworldly. It's yeah. just the, the vegetation has been untouched completely and uh, there's waterfalls. You're wading through the water. I actually fell on this trail and did some damage to my ligaments and my arms and spent a month in physical therapy, but I still like this trail. Um, but one of the reasons I really like this trail is because I'm learning so much history about the park that I didn't know. Um, being a volunteer and working with the interpretive rangers, uh, I've really learned a lot. And this this trail was the original road from the North Carolina side into the Sugarland Valley area before the park ever existed. So when you had settlers coming uh, towards the Tennessee area into the Sugarland Valley, this was the road they were taking. And you know, I look at it now and I think, I don't know how they got anything, any wagons. It was a wagon road. I, I don't know how they did it. Um, right. I'm sure you know it's it's degraded obviously some but I, I just really like the history behind that trail I think it's a very beautiful trail you feel so far removed when you're out on that trail but you're really not that far into the backcountry when you hike it um, 
and and it's interesting the as I said the more I'm learning uh, a lot of the trails in the park are original trails that some of the Appalachian settlers and even the Indians the Cherokees used um, after the park was established the CCC came in and built most of the trails throughout the park did all the stonework that you see throughout the park but a lot of the trails they just used the actual trails that were already there that the Appalachian the Indians had had laid down and were already using um, one of my favorite areas of the park is the Elkmont area which uh, I also volunteer in that area so much history, history there. there yes so much history um, that's where tourism really started was in the park was in the Elkmont area and and before the park was established the cabins that are in the Elkmont area now the park just finished um, redoing 12 of the cabins in an area we call Daisy Town um, and the history behind that is that whole area was logged before the park mm -hmm. was there and it was actually clear-cut so all of those all the woods that you're seeing are second growth um, yeah. woods and so Colonel Townsend who Townsend Tennessee is named after he had the Little River Logging Company and he was logging that area and he was a very smart businessman because you know once once your trees run out your your logging company is done yeah. so he started bringing in some wealthy people from Knoxville um, to experience the mountain air and during that time we're talking about the late night mid to late 1920s it, there was a big movement to get outside um, and so they would come from Knoxville to the mountain air and he hooked a open car train to the back of his logging train his logging train ran from Townsend to Elkmont so when you drive that area of the park along the Little River Road you're actually driving the same railroad bed that the train used um, they have not changed that and so um, he brought these people in, he brought these gentlemen in, and they loved the area. And they started coming once a week, and then their wives went, hey, wait a minute, we want to come. <laughs> and so they started coming, they started running the train up to Elkmont um, with, with people to visit twice a week. And eventually, long story short, they bought about 50 acres from Colonel Townsend, and they started building cabins, and they created the Appalachian Club. Um, you had to be a member of the Appalachian Club to build a cabin there. But there were some very influential people out of Knoxville that were building these cabins. Colonel Townsend was one. Um, Mr. Iams, who was the brother of um, the Iams Nature Center. Nature Center. Yes, they were brothers. Um, he, he was, his, Edwin Iams was his name, and he was a superintendent with the railroad. He had a cabin there. These cabins are still there today and they were made by set off cars which were train cars that they set off with cranes and then they put two or three of them together and put chimneys between them and so you can tour these cabins and um, that's part of my job is to to educate people on who lived here take you through the cabins show you some things that you can't find on the internet when you google it um, and then just even take you up Little River which was an old logging um, railroad ran through Little River Trail and up Jake's Creek and we were talking about trails that kind of were historical and there before the park um, Husky Husky Branch or Husky Gap Trail connected 
the what is now 441, the Sugarlands area, it connected it over to the Elkmont area, and then Meg's Mountain Trail connected the Elkmont area over to the Tremont area, which is where they moved their logging to after they've logged all of Elkmont, they pulled out and went up to the Tremont, which is the middle prong area of our park. So, you know, it's really interesting to know the history behind the trails as you're hiking them. Uh, I did Meg Mountains recently. There were 125 homesteads on what is now that trail. And there's little, if you know where to look, there's little artifacts that you can find all throughout the park. So it's really neat. This is what I absolutely love. And it's, I know it's like, this is how you feel as well. The history behind the things. And so many people visit the park and drive along Little River Road, might go up to Cades Cove. And they, they look at it and like, yeah, it's beautiful. And they, they don't realize yeah. what, went on there in the past it, and i i just absolutely love it and i will say like when i was living outside of great smoky mountain national park i was i lived in townsend mm -hmm. and so i'm familiar with all these places you're mentioning and yeah i wish i knew as much as you know because yeah it, it just blows me away how how those people could survive in those mountains mm -hmm. um yeah. because I know hiking the mountains, you mentioned you're like going up to Lacant. I am so ashamed to admit this. I've only been to Lacant once and <laughs> it's because someone backed out of an overnight stay and they asked me if I wanted to go up there. Yeah. And so I went up there and I was supposed to deliver a speech about the bear center to one of the people hiking up with me. And I just wanted to focus on breathing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you're asking me all these questions and yeah. I was like, you're right with you. So, yeah, um, yeah that, it just blows me away then. That, that hiking and trying to have that conversation, a serious conversation. Um, you know, when we hike, we go, oh, wouldn't this be a lovely place for a picture? That's, that's code for, I need a break. <laughs> I do it all the time. But if you ever join on the Greenfire tour, you know me. It's like yeah. it's picture time all the time. Yeah. Well, I my next hike up Leconte, which hopefully will be coming up soon, will be my 25th time to the top. And you know, in my mind, that that's not many. I have so many friends who have hiked it hundreds of times, yeah. um, and it never gets old. I have a friend who says it's always never the same, <laughs> and and that's true. For any one of the one of the things that really impressed me when I was staying at the lodge, my one trip up, and this this blows people away. Someone at the lodge was having a birthday, and so there there's folks they they delivered a birthday cake. Someone hiked up the trail, delivered the birthday cake, and it was it was nine o'clock at night, and they're like, okay, here's your cake, and then they turned around and went back down, and people are just like in shock. People hike when it's dark out no <laughs> <it's>, yes <laughs> yes you know, sometimes you can't help it because you get caught in the dark yes <laughs> i've got a couple of stories with that too well so. you know some of the trail some of the hikes are so long you have to start in the dark and yeah. you finish in the dark and especially I, I like those early morning because the early morning hikes when you're in the dark you know it's getting light soon <laughs> it's when you don't get to where you're going in time and it's getting dark and you just know yeah. you've got 10 more hours of darkness in front of you 
I have a headlamp in my backpack all the time. That you know, it's just a given because summer it's not too bad. I can usually make it off the trail before dark, but other times during the year, maybe not so. And I have a funny story. You were talking about that birthday cake. Um, yep. My I spent my fiftieth birthday again. I'm dating myself. I spent my 50th birthday on Mount Lacan, stayed the night, and the lodge made me a cake. And okay. they made it up there. But on my 51st birthday, um, I was planning on hiking. I, I try to hike up on my birthday each year. Um, and so I was planning on hiking, and I had a friend that said, you should make some pies. I make peanut butter pies. And so I made them. I froze them. He put them in his backpack with a gallon of milk gallon jug of milk and he and I and several friends hiked up to the top and there were several other friends who were up there staying in the backcountry shelter so we all met at the top and we had this huge birthday party we shared pie with everybody on top of them <laughs> and it's, we, no, no one there expected the peanut butter pie no, and milk. <laughs> no and and I thought he was joking when he said if you'll make it I'll I'll pack it up. And I was like, really? Because I'm not packing it up. That's heavy. <laughs> but he did it. And, you know, someone asked me the other day, I, I made that pie actually for um, the volunteers and the rangers that I work with earlier this week because Tuesday was pie day, if you're a math person. Um, and but some 14 like, for those that don't realize. Three, <laughs> three, three one, four. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we have some really good memories of time spent on Mount Leconte with numerous friends. Uh, you know, and it starts, it starts feeling like home. When you step on a trail and you're running into some of the same people that you know and you see all the time, the hiking community is, is great in the Smoky Mountains. It, it, you know, I've never met a hiker that wasn't a good person. <laughs> Um, and, and I've hiked by myself some. People ask me, aren't you afraid to do that? But um, no, you know, I, I have, I, like I said, I've never met anyone that um, yeah. in the hiking community that, that would cause me to have fear. So. Okay. Well, you're, you're kind of leaning towards like having a, a wild encounter. Unfortunately, you didn't have any wild encounters with okay. any of the humankind. Um, but what what has been your kind of wildest encounter when you've been inside uh, does, that, does that rogue squirrel, ground squirrel up at Mount Leconte count? <laughs> no, just... no, because that, that one, I don't want to say it's tame, but. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> no, no. Uh, that squirrel and I had to have a come to Jesus meeting <laughs> uh, when it tried to climb up my leg. <laughs> there was a lot of shouting going on. <laughs> But no, no, that's not my best wildlife. <laughs> you know, um, we've been talking about the black bears, and of course, that's what everyone comes to the park hoping to see. You know, that's what that's what we're famous for. Um, and so, I have seen so many bears on the trail. I quit counting at seventeen, but I probably in the mid twenties of the number of bears that I have seen on trail. And I'm not counting the bears that I've seen from a car window mm -hmm. or even walking, you know, in the fall, you see them a lot. Uh, you can see them from your car window, but these are bears I've actually counted on backcountry trails. Um, and I've never had a bad experience with a bear. Of course I'm bear wise and I, I give them their space 
and but to just I've, I've been able to, a few times to just step back and and observe uh, and it's kind of a neat thing to observe them in their natural habitat you yeah. know it, it belongs to them and I'm visiting is the way I look at that and just to watch them forge and you know they're very aware I'm there but they're not changing their behavior because I'm not crowding them and I let them have their space and they're beautiful animals they're you know it's really a beautiful a beautiful thing to watch them and um, fortunately I have not had a scary encounter I've you know I know some people have but I've not had a scary encounter um, and so well, that's I think one of my favorite things I guarantee you we can do a whole video cast on bear encounters and and what to do what not to do in yeah. fact I don't know if you've ever attended any of my bear encounter webinars, but one of the classes that we teach at Wildlife for You that I've done numerous times is the language of bears. And you mentioned about observing the bear in its natural habitat. The one thing that is so amazing is bears are very intelligent animals. And whenever you have an encounter with one, you can kind of they, they try speaking to you, whether or not it's vocalizations or some of their behaviors like huffing at you or, or um, popping their jaws. And so the, I'll, I will save that for a whole nother video cast where we can go through <laughs> all of that. But the cool thing is, it, the one thing I want to stress is bears are unpredictable. You can never drop your guard. You've always got to be on your guard because they're a wild animal, just like a, a dog or a cat could snap on you. Wild animals can do the same thing. So never completely trust them. But having so many encounters with bears, you've had a bunch, I've had a, a bunch, you can begin to understand what they're doing and what they're wanting to do. And it makes your encounter so much more enjoyable when you you have that comfort that you know what he's thinking, he knows what you're thinking, and you have that mutual respect. And yeah. you just go about your hike and they go about their business. And so right. I, yeah. I love encountering a bear. I will tell you, when I moved to Tennessee in 1997, I graduated. I had my degree in wildlife management, but I never worked with or had a really close encounter with a bear. And it's like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> and so my, my first couple encounters were... Believe it or not, it was actually with Kim DeLoger at the Park Vista Hotel in Gatlinburg, and yeah. we were darting some bears. But my, I remember, like, my knees were knocking when it, it was, like, the first time getting close to them. And, um, but the more you understand them, the more knowledge you have. In fact, mm -hmm. our catchphrase with Wildlife for You, um, one of the catchphrases is knowledge is power. And so the more you know about wildlife, the more enjoyable it makes your experiences in nature if you kind of know what that animal is wanting to do. Right, right. And the first bear encounter that I had in the park was on Ramsey's Cascade Trail. I don't know if you're familiar with that trail out in the Cosby area. Um, beautiful trail, beautiful cascades, but I had all four of my children with me that day. And so we were coming back from the Cascades, and um, my sons had gone on ahead of me and gotten a little out of sight, not too far, but they'd gotten down in the creek, and they were catching crawdads and playing. My daughters and I came around the, the corner, and my son stood up, and he had a uh, an empty water bottle, and he was trying to catch these crawdads, and he was 
telling me to watch him. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw something move, and I glanced and looked, and it was it was a bear, and it was coming down to the creek. And first time I'd ever seen a bear in the wild. Um, and so I looked at my son. My daughters were with me. I looked at my sons, and I said, bear. And my son kind of turned. He thought I was joking. He turned around looked over his shoulder, and he saw it, and he jumped up out of that creek, and he, I thought he was about to run. And so my kids say, because I don't really remember, my kids said, you yelled at us, don't turn your back on that bear, and said, you got us all in a huddle, and you stood in front of us, and you did that mama bear thing where you put your hands out, you know, mm -hmm. and they said, we didn't know to be whether we should be more afraid of you or the actual bear, <laughs> but we, I just backed my kids up, is what I did, and I stood in between them and her, or it, or he, I don't know. Uh, and we just watched, and he was coming down the, the trail towards me, and I was thinking, this may not be good, <laughs> but just a, just a, I don't know, maybe 15 feet before the, he got close enough, and he never looked at us. You know, he was looking from side to side, he was, you know, so I thought, we're not bothering him, because he's not even acknowledging we're here. Well, he got to an area, and I could tell there was kind of a beaten down path, a wildlife path. And he turned off into that and went on his little way, and we just watched him go. Um, but it was a very neat experience for my kids, and I told them, you know, after, after we were done and calmed down, I said, we just happened to be in his normal pathway at the time he was coming through. You know, he wasn't really worried about us, and we backed off and backed far enough away and then just watched. And so he just went about his business like we weren't even there. And that's what yeah. most of them have done. Yeah, it sounds like you did everything right as far as gathering up your kids and kind of, so depending on what the bear is doing, your reaction are to stand your ground or like slowly back away. And it sounds like you did everything right. I, I When you mentioned about being over towards that Cosby area, I was just trying to think, when was the last time I had a bear encounter inside the park? And it was it was the the year I I left to move out west. I, I took my wife and my son to I don't want to give away the location because you go to Elkmont to see the fireflies. Yes. But there's a couple other places you can go to see the fireflies. And yes. I'm gonna keep that under wraps. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember sitting there, um we we got there before it got dark and this large male bear came into the area and it was kind of like a picnic-y area and he was just making his rounds just trying to find what he could find and so he wasn't displaying really good behavior because you don't want them right. looking for food scraps right and so having worked with bears for most of my career i, I told my wife i'm going to try to scare him away because he's he shouldn't be doing this and so he walked near a dumpster and so I picked up a big rock and I threw the rock at the dumpster to make a big clang and it didn't phase him. It, that was, that area was his area. Mm -hmm. And so we just kind of let him go about his business and he, he finally moved off. And so it got dark and we enjoyed this wonderful firefly show. And it was just, there was only two cars there. It was myself and another car. And we were sitting on the hood and pitch black obviously when you're watching fireflies you don't want the flashlights on mm -hmm. and so we were just sitting there and all of a sudden i heard this crashing through the brush and 
it comes barreling at me, it stops real close, probably within 10 feet, and I hear, and that's uh, that's one of the bear's vocalizations. Yes. And so as I'm telling the story, I'm getting goosebumps just so I, <laughs> so I knew that bear had come back to claim his territory. And so I told my wife and son, I said, just slowly slide down off the hood, walk around to the other side and get inside the vehicle. And so they did that. We did the same thing. And the car next to me, because we have no lights on, and the car next to me is like, what are you doing? They were sitting inside their car. I'm like, what are you doing? I said, there's a really big bear right here. He's just kind of acting pretty defensive there. And they're like, no, there, there's no way. And I said, do you have a flashlight? And they turned it on, and he was like right next to our car. Oh. Anyway, um, yeah, that was my last bear experience where he was he was not behaving like a bear should. But yes. uh, as long as you as long as you know what they're trying to say, yeah, you can you can kind of make the best decision possible as far as what your reaction is. And so right. learn as much as you can about bears. They're they're wonderful animals, and the more you know, the less fearful you are, and the more right. enjoyable your hikes are. Yes, I, I agree. I, I have a lot of people come into the visitor center where um, where I work also, and I was going to ask you because I will have them come in and ask you know about what do we do if we see a bear, and I kind of explain to them some of the things that we've talked about um, and how to behave if they see a bear. But lately, I've had a lot of people coming in asking about bears hibernation, um, and I know you and I have talked about this before. Because I actually called you up and said, give me another crash course because I'm getting all these questions and there's just so much mixed mixed information that's out there and it's not all correct. Um, so you, a couple of things I would ask you that you've, you've shared with me and maybe you should share is, do they really hibernate? Um, and if so... What brings them out of hibernation? Because even this week I had visitors coming in going, we really want to see bear. And about two weeks ago, we had some really warm weather here. It was 78 degrees. And, you know, today we're under a freeze warning. <laughs> but people come in and they'll go, oh, well, are the bears out because it's so warm? Um, so, you know, give us some information about that. I... I love the fact that people are asking are the bears out yet because most people understand that bears, black bears, brown bears, whatever kind of bear you're talking about, bears in North America hibernate during the winter. Smokies are no, no exception. The way that bear, black bears hibernate, it's, it's, it's where some really smart biologists did a really pardon the French, a piss poor job explaining black bear hibernation because they do it a little bit differently than other animals like like um, groundhogs and things like that. They'll go into this really, really deep sleep and they don't wake up for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Black bears will go into a really, really deep sleep, but biologically their body temperature doesn't drop as much so they can wake up really easy. Right. They're still in hibernation. So there's a number of folks. Thankfully, most people understand that black bears hibernate, and they ask you when are they coming out. 
but there's I don't know what it is around the park because I think there's a couple of articles written around the about the park that says black bears don't truly hibernate. Mm -hmm. They truly hibernate. They just do it a little bit differently, and so they can wake up easier. So there's a chance a bear could get up and walk about and be seen in the middle of the winter. The vast majority of bears in the park are hibernating, sleeping the winter away. Um, and so there's this confusion. People will say, oh, it doesn't get cold enough in the Smokies to hibernate. First off, hibernation is not based on the cold. It's based right. on the fact that there's no food available. Whenever winter comes along and all the plants and trees stop growing, they go into that dormant period. Birds fly south in the winter to find food. Anything that eats vegetation adapts to that winter time. And so birds will fly south to where they can find more food. Um, you have animals like bears and groundhogs that will sleep through the winter. But even deer adapt to the winter time because during the, the spring, summer, and even the fall where there's lots of new growth, new vegetation, they eat a lot of those grasses and forbs, those really succulent leaves. But during the dead of winter, you don't have much growing. So even deer switch their diet where they're eating twigs. We call it browse, but they'll eat the buds off the twigs. And so all the animals adapt to surviving this period where there's no new fresh plant growth. Guess what? The Smokies, in the wintertime, there's not much out there. So this idea, oh, it's, it's not cold enough in the Smokies so they don't hibernate is just completely absurd. But just so you know, I'm sure you know how often I try to explain this. I, I ended up writing something to help people understand the absurdity of it because they're getting caught up on these technical terms about hibernation and true hibernation. And the thing I wrote was, if someone were to come up to you and say, all right, I, I'm on this new diet, but instead of fasting, I just don't eat for a long period of time. <laughs> well, that, that doesn't make sense because fasting is not eating for a long period of time. And so once you realize how absurd that sounds, people will come up to me and say, oh, black bears don't hibernate. They just sleep in their den for a long period of time. <laughs> it's the same thing, folks. <laughs> so anyway. Black bears in the Smokies, as well as, well as everywhere else in North America, they hibernate. Now, the further south you go, that length of the hibernation varies. So obviously, way up north in Canada, they might hibernate for five or six months. Down in the Smokies, they might go in in January and come out in March, so it might be a month or two. And so the duration is much longer. But what gets the bears up Yes, it's a combination of it getting warmer, but it's a biological clock that's ticking. And so there's something in their body that's saying spring green up is right around the corner. And so they start stirring and because it's more, they could wake up quickly, they might come out of their den. If they come out of their den in February or early March, well, they'll walk around. People will see them. Yeah. But then they're like, there's still nothing growing out here. And so they'll go back to sleep. Right. But because they know that it's about time for the spring green up, their biological clock is saying it's time to get up. The other thing is they have lost a lot of weight because they haven't eaten for 
maybe a few months. And so they might lose like 30% of their, their body weight. And here's a crazy thing, Meg. It is almost all fat. They don't lose any muscle. Like if a human lays in bed for weeks at a time, they lose their muscle mass first. Can you imagine going to bed for a couple of weeks and waking up and you lose 30% of your body weight and it's all fat? You're just fit and trim. That's what happens to bears. Now, when they do wake up, and most of the bears will be waking up here shortly. Mm -hmm. the, the adult males will come out first. Some of those single females will be out. The moms with newborn cubs, since the cubs are born in January or February, they're usually the last to leave their den. And so usually April-ish, they're coming wow. out. Okay. But keep in mind, those cubs are tiny. And so when they emerge from the den, they're only about five pounds, and they can't really move around too much. Um, but they grow quickly. And so usually by May, you'll start seeing the bears out in force. You'll see, you'll, you could drive around Cades Cove Loop and see 15 bears on one trip around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I have, um, I have people that will come in and ask about that and ask about when they're going to come out. And they'll, like I said before, they'll say, well, it's so much warmer now. So we just figured the bears would be out and they're wanting to see a bear. And I have kind of explained what you have said um, to them by saying, do you ever wake up in the middle of the night hungry and you go down to the refrigerator at 2 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, somebody ate all the leftovers <laughs> and it wasn't you. And so there's nothing. What do you do? You kind of grunt and grumble a little bit and you go back to sleep. Yep. And I, you know, I try to explain to them because they'll come in and say, oh, we, we've heard that the bears are out because so-and-so said they saw one or we saw a, a post on Facebook where somebody saw a bear out in Cades Cove. And I'll say, you know, they, they could be out briefly, but they're looking for their midnight snack and they're not going to find it. They're going to go back. And that um, is my pet peeve is one person will see a bear in January <laughs> and they're like, oh, bears don't hibernate. It's yeah. like, and I love doing these analogies. It's like seeing a bird in the middle of winter say, oh, birds don't migrate anymore. It's yeah. like, no. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, as you said, probably in the next few weeks, we'll start seeing more of these bears. They're come definitely out. coming out. Yeah. And, um, you know, one, one thing, and you addressed it a little bit, is I've heard people say, well, when the bears start coming out, when they're first waking up, you don't have to worry about them. They're going to be groggy, but that's absolutely not true, is it? I mean, because their their body temperature's not dropping. Like if if you were to encounter a bear in mid January, February that may have just woken up, they might be a little slow to react. But when when a bear hibernates, its body temperature does not drop near as as far as say a groundhog. Mm -hmm. And so a bear's body temperature will only drop from maybe like 99 degrees to about 90 degrees. So there's still 90 degrees. It's still pretty cold for a, a warm-blooded animal. Right. But it, it'll take them maybe a few, well, within a few minutes, they can get up and move around. But within an hour or so, they're fully at their senses. And right. And so um, they, they can wake up easy. It, it all depends on when you when you run into them when they're waking up and right. so if they've been up for hours and hours they could be fully at their senses um but the one thing to keep in mind and you can tell folks is in the springtime when they're coming from their den they're hungry 
they've lost a bunch of weight. And so there's some responsibility that the people have not to let that bear get human food. And so unfortunately you see a lot of instances around the cabins and some of the rental areas where bears, they got a a crazy good sense of smell and they can smell some food from trash cans or barbecues and they're going to go looking for that food. So it's up to us to do the right thing, to be bear wise. You mentioned being bear wise. And you know, Dara, I will say we've had trouble with them getting in cars. So we always tell people, at the visitor center when you stop somewhere to get out and look around please be sure and lock your car uh, especially if you're going to be away from it for you know 30 minutes or, or longer lock your car because there's sm- have your parking tag <laughs> yeah oh, oh yes <laughs> yes let me just throw that in there for the park you will need a parking tag if you are in the park for more than 15 minutes um, and you can get those at the visitor center and at kiosk located around the park. So if if you if you're visiting, come see us because they are out monitoring who has parking tags. So and I will say most of the major national parks, when it comes to Yellowstone, Yosemite, all those big national parks, usually you got to pay thirty five dollars just to get into the park. Yeah. The Smokies they cannot charge an entrance fee. Right but they still need money. All of, all of our national parks need money. And the simple thing of getting a parking tag to park your car for more than, was it 15 minutes? 15 minutes, yes. Yeah, and, and the daily pass is like $5. And it's so- $5 for a day, it's $15 for the week, it's only $40 for the whole year. Yeah. Um, and, and what I like to explain to people is the park gets to keep 100% of that money. So that's going to go helping hire more rangers uh, to keep people and bears safe. You know, it's going to go into maintenance. It's, it's, you know, it's really going to help our park um, because as you said before, we've never been allowed to charge an entrance fee. So the only user fees that we have have been camping. Yeah. Um, and all your other national parks, they charge an entrance fee. They get to keep 20% of that entrance fee. And because the Smoky Mountains have never had that, you know, um, they did pass a law, I think it was in the 90s, that said the Smokies could keep all of their user fees, 100% of it, because we don't charge an entrance fee. So all of these park passes are going to help. You know, over over this year and over the coming years, I think we're going to start seeing a lot of improvements that are needed. And I like to tell people because, you know, sometimes people come in, they'll be a little grumpy and they want to argue with you about these passes. They just woke up from hibernation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're looking. You know, they're hungry. I, I always want to say, honey, go get something to eat and come back and talk to me. When <laughs> get a Snickers bar, would you? <laughs> get a Snickers bar. Yeah. I just probably ought to whip one out of my pocket because I've had a few uh, that needed two Snickers bars. Um, but I do like to tell them, you know, you're helping this park. You obviously like this park. You're here to visit. Um, so the money, consider it a donation, and you get a parking pass in exchange for your donation. Um, and we've tried to make it as easily as we can for you to be able to get these parking passes. You can also get them online if you like to plan ahead and you know you're coming. You know, so um, anyway, it, it's a good program. I, I, I hope people just understand that it's a brand new program. There's going to be some hiccups yes. and you'll work through it, but yes. it, and it's a really good thing for the park. I yes. will say 
the one thing that really breaks my heart regarding the park it is the most visited national park in the country because it it's close proximity to so many big cities and so you get a lot of people the one thing that breaks my heart meg is going to so many of these overlooks and like the graffiti and the trash and i hope that's one of the things that benefits from this this new fee is they get to clean up some of those areas and hopefully monitor them so they stay as yes. they should because that, that's the one thing that breaks my heart um you know we have the park is supported by so many volunteers and so many volunteer um, programs and there's one called save our smokies that was started by a friend of mine and they go in and remove the graffiti um, from a lot of these overpasses they do cleanups in the park every month um, and they're just volunteers that have it's a nonprofit organization that loves the park um, and so they come in and try to take care of some of those things but yeah you know if you're visiting the park tr treat it as you would treat your own home you know you wouldn't draw on the walls or at least I don't think um, and and spread graffiti all over your sidewalk going up to your house so you know this is this is a um this is a treasure for us and that that little black guy we mentioned it's it's not many places because the park itself is is pretty wild when you when you look at the more remote and rugged places east of the mississippi that that part of the country is one of the most remote there is and so I think that's the lure. That's the grandeur of Great Smoky Mountain National Park. You could, you get on some of those high peaks, and you could look as far as the eye can see, and it's just mountain after mountain. It's gorgeous. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm hope I'm heading to one of those high peaks pretty soon. <laughs> it's beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. So, I'm gonna end. We've been. Remember at the start of this, in fact, before we even like started recording, we're like, are we going to have enough to talk about? Like how long you want to talk? And, <laughs> and like these things will go on side tangents and conversations and we'll, we'll probably have to call it because we just keep blabbering too long. So I said, we'll just ramble. We'll just ramble. <laughs> I know, and, and now like through our discussions, I probably have about five or six more ideas about <laughs> other video casts that we can do. Um, but I, I did jot down a question I wanted to ask you, make sure we cover it. So you love this park. You worked in the park. You volunteer at the park. There's still, believe it or not, there's still a lot of people out there that have never been to the Smokies. So yeah. what do you want to tell them or what 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 would lure them? Why, why would they want to come to the Smokies? What would you tell them in order to coax them to come visit? You know, we have the most diverse wildlife with, within our park. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a, considered a rainforest. Um, the history alone within the park is, um, is amazing. And, and the park is working more towards sharing that history um, because if we don't share the stories of the Cherokee, the Appalachian people who settled this area, who gave up their land for it to become part of the park, um, if we don't share their stories, we lose them. So, and the park is very aware of that. And uh, they're working very hard towards sharing more of the history. And Daryl, I've, I've hiked in this park for years. And as you said, 
I've lived in Tennessee. I've been a part of this park for a long time. But in the last six months to a year, I have looked at the park totally differently just based on the history that I have learned um, about the, all the areas of the park, but the Sugarland Valley area, the Elkmont area, the Cades Cove area. You know, Cades Cove is preserved with so many cabins, but the Sugarlands area was actually even larger, a larger settlement than the Cades Cove area. So I encourage people to come into the park not only to experience the nature, um, the the wildlife. We're the salamander capital of the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so come in and experience those things. The wildflowers are amazing right now. Uh, I just last week was out doing some off-trailing looking for wildflowers. Um, but also take some time, come by the visitor center. Um, let us share a little bit of the history with you. Let us share some of the trails that contain history. You know, every every day that I work in the park, I help people plan day hikes. Um, so you could come in and kind of tell me, or, or I can kind of ask you some questions, engage your ability, and then I can recommend areas for you to visit that have history with them, that have certain wildlife, um, wildflowers, salamanders. I can kind of direct you to all of these places in the park. And I will say, it's my number one advice to anybody visiting the park, um, Google a little bit before you come, but don't trust everything that you read or see on the internet. Because um, they'll say bears don't hibernate. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, come to the visitor center and let one of us, uh, the volunteers are very, very well trained. The, the rangers are there. They're very well trained. Let us help you plan your day in the park because we can help you avoid the areas that are overcrowded, the areas where the parking is an issue because it is so overcrowded. You know, there's so many trails and so many, so much land to explore. Um, you don't have to go where everybody else is going. And uh, you can come in and let us help you plan out your day and just make it much more enjoyable. And, and you will get to experience the park and, and enjoy it in a new way rather than driving through it, getting frustrated over the parking, um, you know, and then leaving. So we would rather you come and talk to us and let us help you plan your day. That's my number one advice, I guess. That, that is... That is awesome. And a couple of things you mentioned just reminded me. You, you mentioned about the diversity there. I, I'm sure on a future video cast, I'll, I'll go more into this student program that I have developed. But w one of the things we do is we take students from one part of the country and take them to a completely different part of the country. And a couple of times we have taken these wildlife students from the western states and we mm -hmm. took them to Great Smoky Mountain National Park. And that is what blew them away with the diversity. Like in the West, if you're hiking and you see a pine tree, if you call it a ponderosa pine, you're gonna be right most of the time <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. there's, there's not that many trees. There's There right. are, but uh, you have whole forests that are almost all ponderosa pine. You right. go to the Smokies and the diversity of trees there Okay. I will tell you one of the, the most favorite things that those students did when we would take these students who are very well versed in wildlife, we would take them what we call creaking. And so we would just walk up some crazy unknown creek in the Smokies and we would just be looking for salamanders. And the crazy thing is 
in some of the states that these students come from, there's like maybe two or three species of salamanders in the whole state. And in these short sections of creek, there's like 20 different species of salamander. Yeah. It's just unbelievable the amount of diversity and the it crazy is. different forms of wildlife there. And unless you get out and stop mm -hmm. and breathe and take it in slowly and look for things, you, you will, I promise you, it will whiz by through a car window. And yeah. so pull over, get out, talk to Meg at the visitor center and she'll tell yeah. you where to go. You might be standing in line, but that's okay. <laughs> um, you know, you were saying uh, get out of your car, and and I want to express that. And you know, we have some people that come in and um, they're limited in mobility, um, but we have trails that you can. We have a few paved trails. Um, we have we're working on making some trails um, more accessible for those with limited mobility. That's a project that, that they're kind of studying right now. Um, one of my favorite things though, and I'll mention this, is Cades Cove in, during the summer months, they have car free, I think it's on Wednesdays, car free yep. Wednesdays. So they don't allow cars in that loop, that 11 mile loop that goes around Cades Cove at all. So the only way to experience that loop is to rent a bicycle and or bring your own bike and ride the loop or walk it. So almost every Wednesday morning in the summertime, I will go to Cades Cove and walk that 11-mile loop. And let me tell you, I can't tell you how many times I have been through Cades Cove, and I see new things every time I go. And yep. Because you can wander through the fields. You can experience the summer wildflowers. Um, I've come up on deer, uh, um, coyotes, bear walk right out in front of me, you know, um, it's just, it's a way to experience the Smokies. And, and that's, to me, that's the best way. That's the best way to do it. I, I'm not a crowd person. So I tend to direct people kind of away from those crowds. But um, if you have the ability, get out and walk. The Little River Trail, which was an old logging trail that goes out of the Elkmont, is a beautiful, beautiful area. Right on the river with those huge boulders and that rushing stream and, you know, all the salamanders like we were talking about. So there's so much to enjoy and take in. And you miss that if you if you don't yeah. get out of your car. <laughs> no, I, I totally get that. So, Meg, this was so much fun. I, I, I could probably talk for another hour or so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if people want to listen to us for another hour. So what we'll do is we're gonna we're gonna wrap up this episode and i promise you we're gonna do more and more of these yes. good um, very fun and we could we could invite more people we it doesn't just have to be a two-person discussion we can have more people than that yeah. so for this very first video cast from wildlife for you talking about great smoky mountain national park we will reiterate it is a wonderful place if you've never been there please go if you do go you got to respect the park yes but there's so much to learn whether or not it's the wildlife whether or not it's the history of the park that meg can help you with it's just an absolutely amazing place and we hope it's it's yours it's a public national park for yes. you to enjoy so yes, hopefully you'll take advantage of that and create the memories that myself and meg have had this wonderful lifelong opportunity to create memories within Great Smoky Mountain National Park. So 
Meg, thank you so much for joining in, and we're going to have you on many episodes as long as you're willing. So. <laughs> well, I look forward to it. It's always, always a pleasure to talk with you, and I always learn so much every time I have a discussion with you. So I greatly enjoy it. Well, I appreciate it. So we're going to sign off on this very first podcast. I, I imagine we we could probably get a promotion for Snickers bars now. <laughs> <laughs> if Meg hands you a Snicker, settle down. You know, Eat the Snicker and then come back a few minutes later. <laughs> we we laugh. Uh, the I told the ranger one day. I said. My mom voice is going to break out one day, and I'm going to look at somebody and say, you can take yourself outside, and when you get your attitude right, you come back in and talk to me. <laughs> oh, gosh, that Southern girl charm you have, Meg. So. Everybody's been anyway, good. Go, go, go visit the park, go visit Meg, and enjoy <laughs> the wildlife. I'm going to use the catchphrase, our more famous catchphrase with wildlife for you, because when it comes to wildlife, your knowledge often means their existence. So learn as much as you can and enjoy the wild, enjoy nature, and enjoy each other. So signing off, I'm going to bid you farewell, and we will hopefully see you soon. Thanks.